Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Our text this morning is in uh, Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 2. So if you'll be finding that, we'll read these verses here in a few moments. Those of you who were born and raised in Knoxville and still have all of your immediate family in this area don't know what it's like to travel every year for Thanksgiving and Christmas. My family spent the Thanksgiving holiday this past week at our home, just our immediate family, for the first time in our 26-plus years of marriage. And we will likely do the same thing again for Christmas, and no, I am not complaining. You see, because we've always lived away from family, the holidays are always a time for travel. It's just part of what it is. In fact, I commented multiple times this past week or leading up to it that it just didn't feel like Thanksgiving because we were not planning and preparing to drive somewhere to see family. Christmas especially means preparation because you not only have to get your family and the luggage in the car, but you have to get all those presents too. Now, sometimes we'll ship directly to wherever we're going, but more often than not, we buy the presents, we wrap them, we cram them in the car, and hope that when we get there, they don't look awful. Then there is the coordinating with siblings. Who's going where this year? When are you going to get there? How long are you going to stay? Where are you going to stay? And then, of course, depending on the day you choose to travel, there are the inevitable delays and headaches that holiday traffic brings. For many of us, we will not do all of this this year, and we have mixed emotions about it. But what if we had to do all of that? What if we were forced to do all of that? You say, well, I am. Every year I've been married, I've been forced to go to my in-laws on the holidays. Now, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what if something or someone external to us forced us to travel for the holidays? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning as we are going to see that Jesus and his family are forced to travel multiple times. So we are continuing our series that I've called A Crisis of Biblical Proportions, and we are now going to move to the New Testament and see some of the crises that we find in the New Testament. And we're going to begin with the birth of Christ, though technically not really the birth of Christ. We're going to be talking more about the events that happened after the birth of Christ. And so today we are looking at a crisis of flight from Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. I'll read those verses in a few moments. This is a little-known portion of the Christmas story. In fact, I've never preached on this particular passage of Scripture. And as I began my studies for it, I began to think, should I be preaching on this passage of Scripture? I mean, it's, it's one of those passages of Scripture, when you first read it, you begin to question whether or not there's enough here to actually develop an entire sermon on it. And as I studied it, I began to realize that there is not only enough here, but there is clearly more than meets the eye when you first read it. Matthew is the only one of the gospel writers that records this particular event. So in just a few moments, I'm going to read it, 
And as we read it, we're going to see how he has to travel immediately after uh, or several years after his birth. That's quite the crisis. Now, before I actually read the text, I do want to begin with the birth of Jesus. After all, our text begins by saying, now, when they had departed, and so I want to bring you up to speed, although I know you probably know most of this, which is why this part is going to be brief. Joseph and Mary lived in a small village in Galilee, some 70 miles north of Bethlehem, named Nazareth. We'll talk more about that city later. It is a city which we did visit on our trip to Israel a few years back. But there was a decree issued that everyone had to go to their hometown in order for a census to take place so that taxes could be levied. And so Mary and Joseph were forced by external circumstances beyond their control to travel to Bethlehem while Mary was obviously very pregnant. Now, we normally think of her riding on a donkey or a camel, but frankly, the Bible does not tell us the means of transportation. We simply know that they went, and it must have been a difficult journey, no matter what the means were, because of her situation. No doctor in our day would allow a woman to travel that far under such crude circumstances, or frankly, under any circumstances at all. New parents nowadays, under the COVID restrictions, have their own stories to tell. A family not being allowed to, to visit, a family not being able to experience the joy of having a birth, but it is nothing compared to what Joseph and Mary went through. But all of this was done, that the Old Testament prophecy might be fulfilled, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And of course, that is indeed what happened. Jesus famously being born in a stable or a small cave because there was no room for them in the inn, something we are reminded of through countless Christmas plays year after year. After the birth of Jesus, they remain in Bethlehem at least for a year, maybe even close to two years, with calm and serenity. New parents enjoying their new baby and all the joys associated with it. And then sometime in that year to two range, they are visited by wise men from the east who have seen a star and they have come to worship and give gifts to Jesus. They are likely from Persia, which means they have traveled hundreds of miles, really actually close to a thousand miles, which is another reason why there has to be a time between his birth and the visit of the wise men for them to come this far. So they do arrive, they do worship, and they give gifts, three gifts in fact, gifts that you are well aware of. And here is another instance where we assume upon the Christmas story, we assume that there was three wise men because there were three gifts. But that's another piece of information that we are really not told. Afterwards, they were supposed to return to Herod. They had gone to Herod to begin with to say, where could we find this one who has been born king of the Jews? And Herod says, when you find him, come back so that I can go and worship him as well. But we know that was not Herod's intent at all. And as a result of a, uh, of a vision from the angels, the wise men do not return to Herod. They go home a different way. And by the way, the birth of Jesus occurred in the year 5 or 6 BC. Something you may not have known and something I'll explain here in a few moments. So all of that leads us up to the text we are looking at today. 
And let's read Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Now, when they had departed, that is, the, the wise men have departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, I meant to tell you before I read that to pay particular attention to the visits of the angels and to the quotes from the Old Testament. And we're going to look at each of those quotes in turn. So from the birth of Jesus, we move now a couple of years later, and we talk about the flight of Jesus. Joseph is again visited by an angel, not with good news this time, but with a warning, a dire warning. The safety of this child, the Messiah, is very much in danger, and therefore the family must arise and flee to Egypt immediately, a forced flight with an infant. Now, we know nothing of the journey itself other than the fact that Joseph obeyed and began during the night. That is, he left at night, which would have been a much more dangerous time to travel. And yet the fact that he left at night tells us the urgency of this particular situation and the danger that they were in from Herod. Now, fortunately for most of us, if not all of us, we know nothing about what it's like to literally flee for our lives. Most of us have never been in that circumstance. But we can certainly imagine how harrowing the situation would be. The border of Egypt was about 70 miles from Bethlehem. But in those days, it would have taken about three to four days to traverse. Now, this would be a logical place to go, for there was a well-ordered, this was a well-ordered Roman province beyond the jurisdiction of Herod. So once they crossed the border, Herod can't do anything about them. And it was a place that had a large Jewish population, especially the city of Alexandria, which was another 80 miles past the border. If they went there, it would have taken them about a week to go. And there was upwards of a million Jews in Alexandria, many of them also seeking political asylum. There were so many Jews there that they had actually erected an alternate temple so that they could worship down there in Egypt. Now, we don't know anything about the life of Jesus during this time. In fact, we know little of his childhood at all. 
most of our understanding of the early years of Jesus' life goes from the birth. We study that every year at Christmas. We might remember that he was taken to the temple and saw Simeon at a very early age. And then we have mental pictures that do not come from the Bible. That is, we're not told about it. But we can conjure up some mental pictures of Jesus in Nazareth and Joseph's carpenter shop, learning how to be a carpenter. And then we don't see him again until the age of 12 when he is in the temple with the priests. Other than that, all we're told about his childhood is the statement that we read in the Gospels that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The only thing we know about his time in Egypt was that it was going to be short. He was only going to stay there until Herod died. But is there more to this story than merely the safety of a child and his family? Well, surely you know that things do not happen by accident nor by coincidence when we come to the New Testament. And so in verse 15, we have the first of three Old Testament quotes that tells us there is much more going on here. This is a quote from Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. And historically, this refers to the event that we looked at in week one of this series, that is the deliverance of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Jesus is now the new Moses, escaping the infanticide of Herod, even as Moses escaped the edict of Pharaoh so that he could come out of Egypt and deliver his people, us, from our sins, even as Moses delivered the people from slavery. You see, the Exodus is not just a foundational Old Testament event that was commemorated by the Passover year after year. It is not just a Jewish event. Rather, it is a picture, a symbol for us, of our own slavery in sin and our deliverance from sin by the new Moses, Jesus. You see, God was painting a picture for us in sending his son to Egypt so he could call him out of Egypt and remind us that we were in slavery to sin and we've been delivered by Christ. This is yet another reminder of how important it is for us to understand the Old Testament. Because if we do not understand the Old Testament, these symbols, these pictures, which are fulfilled in the New Testament, do not open up for us. But now we see this is not just about going to Egypt in order to save their lives, though that is a, a large part of it. But it's a picture for us of our own deliverance. And so from the flight to Egypt, the next thing we notice is another crisis, another tragedy, the mourning that takes place in Bethlehem. Losing a child is said to be the hardest thing a parent can endure, especially if it's something as senseless as we see here. Herod realizes that the wise men are not going to return and give him the location of Jesus, and so he becomes furious and takes matters into his own hands. It has become obvious that his goal was never to go worship Jesus. His goal was to eradicate him. This is Herod the Great, who was well known, especially in the latter portion of his reign, which he's in now, to be very vicious and violent and ruthless. He was dominated by an obsessive defense of his throne, which means he was intent on getting rid of anyone who posed any kind of threat to his leadership. 
He had large numbers of prominent citizens murdered, including those of his own family. So it is certainly within his character to order the death of all the male children two years and under in and around Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem was a small village at the time. Now it is actually basically a suburb of Jerusalem, but at the time it was a small outlying village with no more than a thousand residents, which means at any given time there would be somewhere between a dozen or 20, 12 to 20 male babies two years and under. Now, I'm not saying that to demean the mourning or the tragedy, just to put it into perspective, because there are those who conclude that this event never happened because it is not recorded in secular history. But as we've said, it is certainly well in line with Herod's character, and on his scale of violence, this would have been rather minor, which means there's no reason for it to be recorded, though it's, of course, not minor to the families involved. Now, notice again that there is the fulfillment of Scripture, this time from our old friend Jeremiah. The quote comes from Jeremiah chapter 31. And as we've seen for the last two weeks, the context in Jeremiah is the prophesying of the fact that the Babylonians are going to come and destroy the city and the temple and take away the people as slaves, deport them to Babylon. Now, I did not plan for this to coincide. That is, I didn't really think about the fact that uh, Matthew's going to quote Jeremiah and send us back to that context, but it's certainly a good thing that it worked out that way. Now, this particular quote is more difficult to fully understand the connection that Matthew is making. Clearly, there's a connection between women who are weeping over their lost children. In Jeremiah, because they've been killed or deported. In Bethlehem, because their babies have been killed by Herod. So in one sense, the weeping of Rachel in Jeremiah 31 pictures the weeping of the mothers that was to come in Bethlehem. Ramah was the place where they gathered the people in order to separate them and then deport them. Jeremiah was himself among that group, but he was released at Ramah. But again, there seems to be more to the story based on the context of Jeremiah chapter 31. In fact, the very next verse after the verse that Matthew quotes says this. This is the Lord speaking. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. You see, we have the quote of Rachel weeping for the children. But the very next verse, God says, stop your weeping. Because the rest of the chapter of Jeremiah is one of a promise and a hope for the future. In fact, it is the latter portion of Jeremiah chapter 31 where we find that promise from God of a new covenant. Where I will write my law on your heart and you will be my people. And so it's a chapter filled with hope and restoration and the future. That's the overall context here which Matthew would have clearly known. And so on the basis of all of this, many believe that Matthew is saying something similar concerning Bethlehem and the arrival of the Messiah. That is, the path, the pain of these mothers is very real, but they need to understand that there is a greater purpose. The tears of Jeremiah's day with the exiles and the tears of these bereaved mothers in Bethlehem will all be wiped away because the Messiah has come. 
The heir to the Davidic throne has come, and therefore they should not be looking back in sorrow. Rather, they should be looking forward in hope. Because now we know that there's hope in the midst of hurt. Now we know that there is life in the midst of death because Jesus has come. And that is the message of Christmas that we celebrate year after year. And so from that, we move to our last point, and that is the return of Jesus. Now, by that, I do not mean the ultimate return of Jesus at the end of the age in triumphant. I mean his return to Israel. Herod dies, and we know historically that Herod died in 4 B.C., which is why I said earlier that Jesus must have been born in 5 or 6, somewhere around that B.C., and also why we know that they did not stay very long in Egypt. And so upon his death, we see another visit from the angel telling Joseph it is now in a dream, telling him it is now safe to return home. The wording of verse 20 is nearly identical to the message that Moses received about returning to Egypt. So this is another Moses comparison. Now again, as we've seen throughout, Joseph is very quick to hear the word of the angel and to respond in obedience. And so upon Herod's death, his kingdom was divided among his three sons. Archelaus, whose name is mentioned in verse 22, reigned over Judea, which would have included Bethlehem. So it seems that originally Joseph's intent was to return to Bethlehem. That is where they went, of course, to have Jesus. That is where they stayed for a year or two after the birth. And it seems that Joseph was intent on returning to Bethlehem until he heard this news. Now, this particular son of Herod was more like his father than the other two meaning he was violent and ruthless, just like his father. It was said of him that when he began his reign, he killed 3,000 Passover celebrants. He was deposed in AD 6, and Rome put a man by the name of Pontius Pilate in his place, whom we know from the passion narratives of Jesus. So instead, he once again is paid a visit by an angel and given a warning to go north into Galilee and specifically to the city of Nazareth. Now, it's interesting how many times in this narrative and what precedes it, a warning is given, something we often take as negative. We seem to think that warnings are negative, when in fact, when we think about it, they're not. We as parents warn our children. Why do we do that? It's not because we hate them. We warn them because we love them. We tell them there is danger in going here or doing that because we love them and do not want to see them fall into that danger. And so time and time again in this story, there are warnings from angels, either in person or through dreams, because the the danger is very serious. The crisis has become very deep. Herod Antipas reigns in the northern part in Galilee, which is north of Jerusalem, up near the border with Lebanon and Syria. We saw these borders when we were in Israel. In fact, I remember one time being on the bus, and we were coming upon a a border crossing with Syria, which, of course, is filled with barbed wire and guards. And so I I told the people on the bus to get their passports out because we were going to cross over into Syria. 
And some of them actually believed me. We weren't going to do that. We did not cross into Syria. We did not cross into Lebanon. But uh, we saw all of those borders. So this is the region where Nazareth is. It's a very small town, at least at that time. Much smaller than even the thousand residents of Bethlehem. It was evidently a city that was founded late in the Old Testament history of Israel because it is never mentioned in the Old Testament. Now, Luke tells us that Joseph and Mary resided there prior to going to Bethlehem, but Matthew doesn't even tell us that point. So they are back home. Three to four years have probably transpired now since the decree that they had to go to Bethlehem, and now they are back home in Nazareth where we will not hear anything else of Jesus until we find him in the temple at the age of 12. So here we have a very heartwarming Hallmark Channel movie of a family who, against all odds, had to travel when she is very much pregnant. Then after a brief reprise in Bethlehem, they have to flee for their lives from a ruthless king only to finally and triumphantly return home after several years. And we can just see the welcoming party of their friends back in Nazareth so that as the, as the credits begin to roll, we're wiping the tears from our eyes. And yet we have to stop and think, there's more to it than that. This is not just a a beautiful story of triumph. There is more that lies beneath the surface. And so for the third time in this text, Matthew tells us that this is a fulfillment of Scripture. Now, the problem with this particular one, we find it in verse 23. It's the very last phrase, that he would be called a Nazarene. That's the third quote. And yet the problem is it's not really a quote. It is found nowhere in the Old Testament. I've already told you that the town of Nazareth is never mentioned in the Old Testament. We never see the word Nazarene in the Old Testament. So what does Matthew mean here? Well, there have been several explanations to try to figure this out. Some have said it's just a scribal error, and what, we, what the word really is is a Nazarite a word that we do find in the Old Testament. A Nazarite vow was usually a temporary vow of consecration to God, a, a serious uh, vow of service to God. At times, it was lifelong, as in the cases of both Samson and Samuel. But the problem with that is Jesus was not a Nazarite. He didn't make that vow, and therefore, that does not solve or answer the question. So most scholars believe that what Matthew is doing here is not obviously quoting a specific text in the Old Testament or a specific passage of prophecy. Rather, he is talking about the general theme of the Old Testament. Thus, it refers to the fact that the prediction of the Messiah would come and he would come from a small, out-of-the-way, despised place so that the Messiah himself would be treated likewise. I'm not sure we use this word anymore, but at least we used to say so-and-so has come from some podunk town. And what that meant was it's some town that nobody's ever heard of. But it really meant more than that. It really meant not just that they were from a small town, but it also meant that the residents from that town are insignificant. They don't matter. It's just some out-of-the-way podunk place. And that's what they thought of Nazareth. 
in this time. Let me give you a couple of examples that tell us what people thought of Nazareth. Early on in Jesus' ministry in Galilee, he begins calling his first disciples, and one of those disciples was Philip. And Philip gets excited about what he has found in Jesus. And so he does what is natural when we get excited. He wants to tell others, including those closest to him, which in his case would have been a brother. And so he goes to his brother, Nathaniel, filled with excitement, and he says to Nathaniel, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel's answer is memorable and informative. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? For some strange reason, that's one of my favorite quotes in the New Testament. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And I like Philip's reply too. Philip just says, well, why don't you come and see? I mean, talk about a brother squelching his enthusiasm. What are you talking about? Nobody, nothing good can come from that place. The second instance involved a dispute as to who Jesus was. You know that he had a long-running dispute, most of his ministry with the Pharisees. And there were some who said he was a prophet. There were some who said maybe he's the Christ. The Pharisees would consistently get mad and oftentimes send people to arrest him for blasphemy. And so in this particular case, that is exactly what happens. They know he's from Galilee. And they also know that the Old Testament says that the Messiah is going to come from the, the city or from the line of David and be born in Bethlehem. So they have this dispute. And they send some people, some officers, to arrest him. But the officers return having not arrested Jesus. And they say, why didn't you arrest him? And they say, well, no one has ever spoke like this man. And then Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee himself, but... He has some leanings toward Jesus, tries to mediate the situation and basically stand up for Jesus and say, let's not come to a conclusion before we listen to this man. And here's the Pharisee's response to Nicodemus. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So clearly Nazareth in the time of Jesus was a despised place with a despised people. And that is, in essence, what the Old Testament said about the coming Messiah. Isaiah said, he would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And so this seemingly brash statement that Matthew just sort of puts here at the end, he shall be called a Nazarene is actually acknowledging not just the hometown of Jesus' parents and where he would spend the majority of his childhood. It is actually much more than that. It is a prediction that he too will be rejected by men. And we know that that is indeed what happened. And that is what we will talk about next week. Well, today you might be tempted to conclude that Jesus is no longer despised. He is no longer rejected. He is actually very much celebrated. After all, Christmas is clearly the most popular holiday on our calendar, and the vast majority of people in America will be celebrating it. But surely you are also aware that just because someone celebrates Christmas does not mean that they are honoring or following Christ. Who knows how many people will leave Christ out of their celebration altogether and how many more will attempt to include him without any real idea about who he is and what he has accomplished. So Jesus is still from Nazareth. 
which means the majority still despise and reject him. Now, I trust that you are not in that majority. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't be here. I trust that you are here because you do love Jesus and you do believe in him and have faith that he has saved you from your sins and you want to follow him. He then has come to end our mournful exile and bring us safely home. And hopefully that describes you. And if not, you can this Christmas start by placing your faith and trust in Christ. And therefore, you will have the best Christmas you've ever had. Now, we've heard a lot of talk, or at least posts this year, about people decorating early for Christmas, even earlier than normal, because the line is, well, I just need a little joy. I mean, this has been such an awful year that I need a little joy, and so I'm going to decorate early. I realize that lights and decorations can make you smile and can bring you some temporary happiness, but they can never bring lasting joy because you're going to be taking down those same lights in just over a month. Plus, they can never bring you true joy. They do not have that power. The only way to have the joy of Christmas and to have it year-round is to know the Christ of Christmas. And if you know him, you have access to all the joy you'll ever need, and you need nothing else in this life or in the life to come. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you this morning for the opportunity we've had to be here and to study once again a portion of the, the Christmas narrative as we prepare to, to celebrate. And I pray that we would celebrate rightly this year, that you would be the center of not just our Christmas celebration, but our very lives. That you would remind us again that you called your son out of Egypt as a picture of the deliverance you've given us from our sin. And that we would rejoice, uh, not in the decorations nor the presents, but we would rejoice in that great truth that Jesus Christ has saved us from our sins, that the Messiah has come, and because of that, we will reign and rule and live with you forever. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.